0: This is episode 574 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we look at the book of Acts, we find the amazing account of the Lord taking a group of strangers, like 3,000 of them, and forging them from a gang into a family by just giving them four things they needed to focus on. We find this in Acts 2.42. The passage reads, And they continued steadfast in 1. The Apostles' Doctrine, and two, fellowship, three, in the breaking of bread, and four, in prayers. Three of these we have no problem with, and we still do today, but there's one, the breaking of bread, that talks about the forgotten practice of the early church known as the love feast. So what is this love feast, and why was it so important back then, and why do we no longer do it today? Great questions. Join us as we discover the joy, the forgotten joy, of embracing the love feast, this sharing of a common meal together as part of our worship, and how important it was for the early church to transition from an institution to a family as we learn together how to leave Laodicea behind. I uh, was going to go through talking about the various passages where Jesus dealt with deception because I was going to jump ahead of uh, the whole deal here and uh, try, to show you, try to tell you the end from the beginning and try to share with you um, how we have been deceived uh, for such a long time willfully um, back during one of the earlier church age. But instead, I want to take about three minutes. I want to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. And I want to show you one or two things that we should remember. In these seven letters to seven churches, which basically summarize church history, there are two of these the Lord only says bad things about. We happen to be living in one of those. There are two of these that he only says good things about. And the rest of them he says kind of good and kind of bad. Here's the good things that you're doing. However, I have this against you. And so as we're looking at church as churches as we're looking at how they did things it would seem logical at least to me that if God says only good things about a church during this era of time let's say the layout, uh, the um, Philadelphia church age back during the great Jesus movements of the 17 and 1800s the great missionary movements and all that the the higher Christian life movements, the, uh, the time in which many of our heroes lived, such as Spurgeon and Moody and um, Oswald Chambers and, and stuff of that nature. It seems that if we were going to follow a church in their practices and their beliefs, why in the world would we ever choose one where the Lord only said bad things about? I mean, that, that's like crazy, it's like, I want to follow somebody in business, and I want to learn from them, so I have a choice between a multimillionaire or a guy who's filed bankruptcy. If it seems crazy that I would try to do everything the guy who failed did, instead I would want to do everything the one the Lord said, I'm pleased in all that you do. Would you agree with that? If that's the case, then the two churches, two churches' ages, that uh, the Lord said nothing bad about is the um, persecuted church in Smyrna, which is from about the close of the canon, about 100 AD, all the way to the Edict of Toleration of Constantine, when all of a sudden the church got melded to the state. That happens to be in verse 12 of chapter 2, the uh, church in Pergamos, uh, which means mixed marriage. It means, you know, that now the state and the church were combined, and that lasted for about 300 years until you get to the... um, uh, verse 18, the church in Thyatira. This is from like 606 and following, where Boniface II was declared as the worldwide pope. And the word or the word Thyatira means continual sacrifice. Wow. That's the Catholic Church, if you think about it. Every icon you see, every picture of Jesus you see, you see him still on the cross. And his, his sacrificial blood was not appropriated to you until some priest does it, or you have to go to confession, and man provides for you absolution, or you have to go through an intermediary like Mary or some of the, uh, some of the uh, saints. And, you know, it's, it's insane, but you can see how it all fits. What happened is that... The persecuted church suffered greatly on 10 great persecutions, Diocletian and, and uh, Trajan and many of the other great persecutions. They persevered. All of a sudden, Constantine decided that he would uh, make him be tolerant of the. Um, of the Christian church at that time. The big scandal that took place at the end of the second century was you had these believers that were in prison and many of them died because of their faith in Jesus Christ and refused to recant. And then you had these other believers, which is kind of like in Bonhoeffer's Germany, the difference between the professing church and the confessing church. You know, one church had their sermons approved by Himmler and the uh, the propaganda machine. And on the pulpit, you would have the Nazi flag and then the Christian flag, and they let those churches exist. But then those people who wanted just the pure gospel, like Bonhoeffer and the confessing church, they had to go underground. And and what happened in church history is that all of a sudden when Constantine says, okay, that's it, we're not going to persecute Christians anymore, and then later declared Christianity to be the Pseudo religion. He did it for political reasons of the Roman Empire at that time. The prison doors were open, and here walked out these saints who had suffered for the cause of Christ, walking into congregations that were inhabited by people that had sold them out and betrayed them. And so, the first big, um, first big controversy they had when that happened is those people who stayed true to the faith said, "There's no place in the church for these compromisers." But the compromisers had the ear of the emperor, and the compromisers wanted to be like every other religion, and so uh, what happened is the compromisers won. And during that process, um, you will find that what we're going to talk about today, the love feast, actually was set aside because a Roman emperor didn't like it anymore and because of something called the Council of Laodicea. I've studied church history forever, and I never even noticed that council Uh, Council of Laodicea, which agreed that there will be no more meals eaten in church because now churches had sanctuaries and stained glass windows, and basically they were pagan temples that had been repurposed for Christianity, and pagan priests who now had been repurposed as Christian priests, and everything went downhill from there. So back to Acts chapter 2. The question is, why is that even important? Well, it's It's important because of this. We've got this 120 believers who all came from a Jewish background, as believed. They were all in the upper room. They were waiting and they were praying. Jesus had promised them that you to stay in Jerusalem until my promise comes, the promise of the Father which you've heard from me, when the Holy Spirit falls upon you, and then you will become, you will be changed, you will be transformed to be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, where you're at, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They had no clue what that meant. Matter of fact, their next question was, okay, but uh, are you going to uh, uh, restore your kingdom right now and sit us on those 12 thrones? Ah, Jesus, I could see his frustration. Oh, no, it's not for you to know that time, that time set by my Father, but you shall receive power. You shall receive Deuteronomy explosive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And this is my calling. Jesus is ascended up into heaven. They're looking at him. Go away. Two angels show up and say, the same Jesus who was taken from you this way will come again in a like manner. They went to the upper room and they waited. We don't know what they did. We know how long they waited. And we know that one transaction took place in that upper room where they decided that they had a responsibility devoid of the Holy Spirit to replace Judas. And so they brought these guys together that had been with them since the, the baptism of John. They threw dice. They cast lots. They chose one. We never hear from him again. Was that God's will? There's a debate on that. I personally don't think so. I think that 12th place was meant for the Apostle Paul. That's why he kept saying over and over again, I am a disciple. I am an apostle. But nevertheless. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost happens, and Holy Spirit falls. And when he falls, he falls in this fantastic way that everybody would know. This room is shaken like a, like a 747 is parked in the parking lot, and there's, uh, there's, everybody's kind of overwhelmed with that, and these cloven tongues of fire come, and they rest on all of these people, and they begin speaking in other dialects. Oh, we're going to get in a big debate about tongues. Well, not here we're not because the dialects are listed in the book of Acts. You have all these people in Jerusalem from various providences, and it lists, for example, beginning in verse number 8, where they're saying of Acts chapter 2, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, and even list those people, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia, and on and on and on. People thought they were drunk. Peter stands up in the middle of this crowd. And if you take out, this is the amazing part, if you take out the Old Testament passages that he quoted, this sermon is 297 words long. I mean, it's not even a blog post. It's more like a really big tweet or two, 297 words long plus Old Testament passages. And he, Peter, this shy guy who just you know, 40 days earlier, denied he even knew who Christ was, all of a sudden, or 50 days earlier, all of a sudden stands up and just points directly to them and this very confrontational, in-your-face message. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow, both Lord and Christ, you did this you cried for barabbas you did this now when they heard this they were cut to the quick they were convicted and said to peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren uh, what shall we do it's power of the holy spirit 297 words then peter said to them repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the remission of your sins and the most important thing that has happened to us will happen to you. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, and as many as the Lord our God will call. Holy Spirit equals salvation. No Holy Spirit, no salvation. Really simple. And as I have here, and with many words, he testified, exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation, which is what we should be telling people today. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And you have to understand, to a Jew, getting baptized was an anathema. In other words, the Jews were very proud of their heritage. We trace our lineage all the way to Abraham. Well, God can turn these stones into sons of Abraham, John the Baptist. That doesn't really matter. The fact is that, that we're Jews and you're not. And if you're a Gentile, and you want to become a Jew you have to go through this process as a Jewish proselyte and as part of that you get baptized by immersion so to for a Jew who was a, traces his lineage back to be lower himself to be a uh, like a proselyte and be baptized is something no Jew would do unless true transformation took place 3000 souls were added to them that day Okay. When I worked at New Life 91.9, I did a lot of concerts that many of you came to. Uh, We'd bring the newsboys in or somebody like that, and we would uh, rent out stadiums, and we would sell tickets, and sometimes there were 3,000, sometimes there were 5,000 people that were there. Uh, It's a huge crowd, uh, huge crowd of people. Gave me a real appreciation for what happened here. 3,000 people are saved. Many of them just probably most of them just came for the uh, required holiday. They didn't have their bank accounts with them. They didn't have maybe all that has a passport and a couple credit cards. If you're dealing with it like we would today, you know their homes and businesses were somewhere else. They came. They met this Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were now baptized. They were united to a group of people they didn't even know. These guys were strangers. Some of them had hard time even probably understanding each other. And Peter and the gang had a logistic problem. What in the world do we do? How do we feed these people? How do we house these people? I mean, we just were filled with the Holy Spirit. We've got no idea of what church is like. We have no idea of what worship is like. When we don't know anything other than what we've experienced. And now we're in charge of 3,000 people world hates them. The Jews want to stamp them out. Their family and friends will turn against them. Many of those who had jobs once they became Christians were canceled. I mean, it was, it was difficult for them. And so, Lord, what do we do? I mean, how can we turn this group of strangers into not just an association of people, but how can we turn them into a family, How can we turn them into the body of Christ? How can we turn them in so, as Paul would later say, each person in the body of Christ has its part and does its job? And if one person refuses to do that, the eye says, I'm not a hand and and I'm not going to function unless I can become the hand, then the whole body is handicapped. How do you do that? We've never seen that in church in America because we just all come together as a group of independent contractors we make some friends. If something happens, I don't like the music, or I don't like the preaching, or I get offended, then I'm going to go to another church or another church or another church. And for most of you that are my age, the greatest hurts you've ever experienced have been in church when you've been betrayed by people who were supposed to be your family, because it really wasn't. How do we do that? Lord, we're clueless. I mean, what do we do? How do we teach these people? Do we start with eschatology? Do we tell them about the Sermon on the Mount? We've got no New Testament. We've got no Bibles or or books to hand out to them. All we have is an Old Testament, which again, we can talk about them pointing to Christ. but, But what do we do? What do we do? When the Lord said, I'll give you the blueprint. I will not only give you the blueprint but I will show you what an incredible response will happen when you take strangers from all these different places, all these different backgrounds, and you bring them together and infuse them with the Holy Spirit. Let me show you what's going to happen. And it says, and they continued steadfastly in something. Well, what? The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers, if you, um, if you read the email that I sent out a couple days ago, spent quite a bit of time talking about koinonia. It was that one, wasn't it? Cononia and what it meant. Fellowship meant a whole lot more than just what we just did in here. What we just did in here is a bunch of people who like each other, who have a common interest, came together and shared a meal. Um, we shared a meal sitting with the people we normally sit with. You know, our friends and neighbors and stuff of that nature. And pretty much we had little chit-chat and you know, small talk and and stuff of that nature. And but the word koinonia means a partnership, it's a melding together. It's 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 far more different than what I've known my entire life that was something we define fellowship. Like we're gonna have a potluck fellowship dinner after church. Why do you have to put the word fellowship there? Because it's a church dinner. We never talk about that at home. Hey. Let's get all the family over and have a fellowship meal. What? Not a fellowship meal. It's just a family get-together. Same thing happens. They they were continued steadfastly. By the way, that means devoted to. It was the most important thing in their life. They didn't deviate from this. Their, Their ministry and their way of growing in the faith was defined to these four things. It doesn't say it was defined in stuff that we do today. Uh, there wasn't uh, so- songs that are being sung, although I'm sure there were. It's not a worship band experience, or I- I'm sure it was. Um, no, it wasn't a worship band, but it was a worship experience. It- it's just these things, these four things. And what happened when they were devoted to these? God poured himself out. God said, you do it my way, and I'll respond. It's like an if-then postulate, if you don't do it my way, why should you expect me to respond? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe he, God saved, raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. If you don't do those things, why do you expect God to follow through on his end? If you acknowledge the Lord, with, trust in the Lord with all your heart and if you do not lean on your own understanding, if in all your ways acknowledge him, then he responds, you'll direct your paths. If you don't do those things, why should we expect things to be any different than they are now? So that's what they did. Here's what he did. And fear came upon every soul, 3,120 of them from day one, it appears. And many signs and wonders were done to the apostles, um, authenticating this Holy Spirit living in them. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions in good and divided them among all as anyone had need. Oh my gosh, that's like Hippyville in the 60s, and we don't want to have anything to do with that. No, what this shows is how quickly these people melded together as a family. Who would you sell your possessions for? Who would you mortgage your house for and give to them, even if it meant that for the next 20 years, you're going to be paying for it? Who would it be? A stranger, a church member, a friend? At best, it would be family. And many of us won't even do that for our families. But this group of strangers were so committed to Christ And this apostle's doctrine and teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers that they were willing to sacrifice everything they had for a goal but a person bigger than themselves. This just shows how quickly God melded these people into the body of Christ. So they're devoted to these four things, and they're devoted to Christ. And what did that look like? Well, it's really simple. There's some things that they did and some things God did. Look what they did. So continuing daily, that's a big word since we only get together occasionally. Key word here is in one accord. That's not the car. So continuing daily with one accord in the place of persecution, the place of hostility, the place that they shouldn't be in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Well, this is talking about a meal. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God all the time and having favor with all the people. That means the woke crowd and the people who believe with him. And what did God do? He added to the church every single day, those people who are being saved. You might want to trace it yourself. Look at uh, how the numbers are added, then pretty much they're multiplied, and then pretty much the, the numbers keep increasing. Now some priests are added to the fold, and it's this, this crazy off-the-chart multiplication effect of people getting saved because they saw this group of people, these strangers who had come together and melded themselves at one, as one, and then I hope I hope I I included the passage in the email I've already sent you. If not, it'll be in the next one. It falls right in line with what Jesus said in John 17, that his prayer for us, for those who would believe in him on their name, was they may be one, as I am one with the Father, and the Father is one with me, and I with them they may be one with each other. And the reason is, so the world will believe that the Father sent me. Now, what is that? That's this koinonia thing. It almost sounds like the most important thing Christ was going to do is try to figure out a way to bring these people together into a shared partnership. Not a, a loose association of independent contractors, but a shared partnership, which means when I help Robert, I'm helping me. That we're, we're together in this, a partner, like a, like a business deal. That when, uh, if, if I do something that hurts Robert, it also hurts me. And as Paul talks about, nobody loves anything more than we love our own flesh. How did, it ha- how did this happen? where they continued steadfastly in, and again, uh, you can read the article I sent to you, means that they were devoted among everything else. Nothing was more important than these four things. The apostles' doctrine, we would call that Bible teaching, we would call that preaching, we would call that, call that learning from His word, the God that God would equip somebody, they would open up the word, they would teach us, we would ask questions. It would be a time where we could grow in our knowledge of what the word says and then act upon that knowledge. Number two in order is fellowship. koinonia. The whole purpose of all of this was to bring them together as one. That's why, if you remember when you know, persecution took place in the church, and all of a sudden, it could happen here. All of a sudden, the government busts in and says, okay, if you guys keep coming to, the, to this church, uh, every one of you are going to get audited by the IRS. Every one of you are going to lose your job. Every one of you are going to suffer from that. Most people would pack up and go to another church and run, but uh, these people would stay together. As a matter of fact, when Peter and John came back and reported that they were They were told they cannot at all preach or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Do you remember what they did as one? They prayed and said, Lord, give us more boldness. Let us fly in the face of Caesar and Herod even more than we had before. And God confirmed that by the very house they were shaken, and they preached the word of God with even more boldness. Today, preacher gets a little radical. We're going to go somewhere else because there's, there's not that oneness that the Lord wanted more than anything, oneness. Man, we're, we're, just, we're so busted up in different churches and different denominations. And I think I read somewhere that there's, I don't know, like 390 different brands of a Baptist denomination. Pastors don't get together. Communities don't get together. Nothing like that happens. And, and later on this week, you'll, you'll understand clearly why that happened. The breaking of bread. Well, what is that? Well, if you live in today's world and you go to seminary, they'll tell you exactly what that is. Well, that's communion. That's communion. That's not, uh, that's not a common meal. It's communion. Well, this is, these, these believers just came to Christ day before yesterday, and they're committed to the breaking of bread? Well, If that's true, then if you read a couple passages later where it talks about Uh, continuing daily, verse 46, with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from the house to house. Was that a communion deal? And even if it was communion, does that mean that uh, anybody could do communion? You don't have to be one of the apostles to do communion? I mean, did they have some sort of leader that was sanctioned by the institution to be able to do that? It's not what the word means at all. It means exactly what it says, breaking of bread. They had a communal meal together. They actually had a name for this meal. They called it the agape or love feast. And it was the center part of their entire time together when they came for worship. It was all-encompassing. It wasn't like what we do today. And, of course, in prayers. That's corporate prayers. That's individual prayers. It's prayers. It was this love feast that they had. Matter of fact, there's a couple places in Scripture where... um, where the love feast is mentioned, and it was always mentioned not in a negative sense, but the instruction was given because, uh, especially in the church of Corinth, the people were abusing that, and they were all about themselves rather than realizing that their actual church service and actual ministry began when it started with a the meal. There, during the, during the second and third century, from the um, and again, your next email, will quote a lot of this stuff, from the uh, early church fathers, you will find that the church got together and celebrated a love feast. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the apologies that were written at that time, trying to explain Christian practices to government officials, talked about this love feast. And they talked about the fact that they all shared a common meal together. There was prayers. There was, um, there was an offering that was taken to benefit the poor. The Lord's Supper was also part of this love feast, and they did it every single time they got together. Because the best way to ever build fellowship with somebody or get to know someone is around a meal. Think about that. You just meet somebody, what do you say? Hey, come over. I'm mowing my lawn. You can sit on my zero turn while I do the weed eating. We kind of get to know each other. Can you come over on a Friday? No. We always go, you want to go out to dinner? Why don't you come over to my house for a meal. Hey, why don't we uh, go grab some coffee? And we sit down over something that's enjoyable, something that, that fosters fellowship, and we have a meal. Family reunions, they don't get together for anything other than food. You know, we, family reunion, food, everybody comes and we have a good time. Birthday parties, food with a cake. Um, everything, is a party at church or a party at work, they say, hey, we're getting it catered because we're going to have food because food and fellowship and getting to know people are synonymous. It's that way in a secular world. It should be that way in the Christian world, but it's not by design. Let me show you a little bit about this love feast. I'm going to explain it to you a little bit, and, um, and then I'll quit in just a few minutes. Jude talks about this love feast. And Jude is talking about all these satanic plants who have filtered into the church. And what we have to do is contend earnestly for the faith delivered by the fathers. In other words, uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on, and we need to take a stand against that. And so therefore, um, I'm I'm telling you about these people, these hidden reefs that are in your congregation that are actually trying to pervert what you're doing during your love feast or for them listen very carefully your worship service that's what this was for them this was their worship time it was the early church church service what we have today is something of a pagan model where we all come to a cathedral or a building or something something designated just for church and there's a high priest up there. And he, of course, is going to administer the blood or the wine or the curses or the blessings or whatever it is up there. We kind of sit and receive from him. And all that's the pagan model that was adopted back during the fourth and fifth century that the Catholic Church just promulgated. And the the Protestant Church decided not to change because it takes a few people like us that elevates them to the point of you know, we're the guys in charge and everybody else, you have nothing to say. You just sit here until somebody's told you that it's okay to talk. And it's not how it was in the early church at all. Here's what he says. He says, these are spots, blemishes in your love feast, which shows that by the time Jude is writing, love feast had become part of their worship service. That's, that's part of what was going on. And, and how were they spots like that? Well, they were selfish. They feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Then he goes on to say more things about that. As a matter of fact, if you look at the instructions about the uh, Lord's Supper that we read every time we do the Lord's Supper, as it uh, was delivered to me, I delivered to you, then on the first day of the week, Jesus did so-and-so, and he took the wine after supper, and or the bread after supper, and broke it, and all that kind of stuff. If you read the text prior to that, and here it is, and you'll get it in an email, this week, you will find that Paul is chastising them because when they came together, some people were saying, you know, I'm rich and you're poor, so I get to bring the food. You don't have the food. And therefore, since you're so dirty, I'm going to eat first. We're going to have our family eat first. The rest of you can just pick up the scraps. Some people are getting drunk. Some people are uh, are gorging themselves. Some people are keeping other people from even eating. And Paul is like saying, don't you have your own homes to eat in? Don't you realize that when we come together for a love feast, it's not about food. It's about the other people that are in here. It's the beginning of our worship service. Therefore, let me go ahead and regulate for you the, uh, the Lord's Supper part of the love feast. It was a common meal that was shared among the church that included the four things we just looked at. Probably included a lot more things, but it included a um, time of the apostles' doctrine of teaching. It included a time of prayers. Of course, that's funny, that's listed last. It included a fellowship, which is the whole point of what we're doing, and it included the means of fostering that fellowship, which is a common meal. It also included the Lord's Supper, and what happened about the 3rd and 4th century is the church decided to split. The Lord's Supper is a separate unit, and the love feast is a separate unit. We're dumping that one because of, and I will explain this to you when we get to it, because of a compromise on their part, wanting to be like everybody else, and because the emperor said so. And instead, we're just going to hold on to the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to change that into such a way that it never brings fellowship. Never. You can't even touch the wafer in a Catholic church. You come and you kneel. You open your mouth and somebody else sets it on your tongue. I mean, it's ridiculous. And it's all done by design. And it is pagan in nature. So what was it like to worship in an early church? This is what I want to do here. All of us are conditioned to worship differently. All of us are conditioned to come and just sit and participate. You know, we don't really say any much, say much. We talk about giving uh, uh, testimonies, and all the adults in here have known Christ far longer than the youth have. The youth are ready to share their testimonies, and the adults aren't. And why is that? Well, we've just learned over the years that I don't say anything in church. Why not? Well, that's just not my job it's somebody else's job. There's nothing in you that I need to hear? There's nothing that God has shown you that can edify the congregation? I mean, does what I have to say worth more than what you have to say? What they have to say that are willing to say worth more than you? Well, no, but this is the way we're raised. We're raised in a pagan setting where you come and you sit and you go through the motions and somebody else performs and somebody else declares blessings or somebody else does something and you by faith appropriate that into your life go on out live your life just like you normally do then come back for another dose of it we've all grown up that way for 1700 years and when you find out why it's going to make you mad didn't me feel like i've been conned here and then we wonder why all the fellowship is gone i mean one of the things that shocked me the most when we started this church, and we started this church in the year 2000 in April, thanks to Susan. 2000 in April. We were having a Tuesday night Bible study after I resigned from West Franklin Baptist Church, and Susan said, where are we going to meet on Sunday? Oh, man, I was so beat up. I just wanted a place to rest. But okay, we'll, we'll start this church. And so we began this church, and the, one of the people that came with us from the very beginning was a man named Dwight Hoffman. Does anybody remember Dwight? Deut- probably still talk to him on Facebook, Doit Hoffman. Doit Hoffman, in the last church, the West Franklin Baptist Church, grew up in that church. I mean, his son was killed, and that church rallied around him. I think his dad helped start the church. Is that true? Huh? Grandfather started that church. The best friends Doit had were at West Franklin Baptist Church until he came here. And once he came here, he told me he never heard from anybody. No, they never really talked to him. Occasionally, he'd bump into somebody, but man, they had their life. They, they were rocking on with themselves, and he had removed himself from their temple where all the religious functions took place. And once you remove yourself from a building or a fellowship, the, this lifetime of koinonia, our fellowship, our friendship, really turned out not to be a lifetime after all. We've had some of the teenagers that were here, and they grew to be an adult, and they were just really tight with some of the other people in our church. And then they went to another church, that's it, to hardly ever talk anymore because of the way it's designed. It's designed that when we come to a setting and do our religious stuff there, when you move from that setting, it seems like none of the friendships carry. There are exceptions, but that's a general rule. That's not the way God designed it. How in the world is that partnership with anybody, if we're all part of the universal body of Christ. Here's what they did. They would come together for a communal meal, and they would declare, and this is, again, this, I will give you the references to this this week. These are the writings from the early church fathers during the, second, the uh, second and third century, that they would come together for a communal meal. Everybody would bring something, and those that had a lot would bring more for those that had little. And everybody came and everybody had a meal. When all of a sudden in the church in Corinth, people were getting really factionist and all that kind of stuff, then Paul had to step in and correct that problem. They would have a meal. And during that meal, ministry would take place. People would find out about new people. I mean, think about that. Every time they came together, there were new believers, They would walk through that door not knowing anything other than once I was blind and now I see. So they were brought under the the tutelage and the mentoring of people who had known Christ even longer, the apostles or maybe someone who'd known him three weeks longer than than you had. They were, hey, come sit with us. Hey, come have a meal. Well, I didn't bring anything. It doesn't matter. There's plenty of food, and if there's not plenty of food, I won't eat, but you eat. It was ministry-wise. During that time... This took place. And again, here Paul is regulating things that happen during a worship service, during the group that's together. How is it, brethren, whenever you come together? Not just pastors, each has a psalm, has a teaching, ooh, has a tongue, which is a revelation given in a foreign language they don't understand, or a revelation, which is given in their regular dialect, has an interpretation, which be, would which be a revelation interpreted for a tongue. Let all things be done for edification." What was happening here, you can look up the context, is people were getting crazy and they were doing these tongues and there was no interpretation and it came to this wild free-for-all. So Paul would regulate that and say, look, if you're going to have a a tongue or interpretation, it can be no more than three and there has to be an interpreter. I would rather you speak in a language everybody understands than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let everything be done for edification. When did this take place during a worship service? Did somebody stand up in the middle of the choir special and say, I have a revelation from God? Oh, it happened during the love feast. Because the entire worship service was was just an extension of a meal. What we do, I uh, I was writing about this last night. What we do is we segregate everything up into certain categories you go to a church and they hand you a playbill. You ever had one of those bulletins? Playbill. And I open it up because I want to know what's coming next and what I've missed and who's involved. So I open it up. Wow, there's this organ prelude, and it tells me who wrote the music. Oh, there's a CCL license at the bottom, so we make sure that they get a few pennies for the songs that we're singing. Oh, here's announcements, and here's the opening hymns. Oh, here's the scripture verses given by this guy. Here's the message. Here's the choir special. Here's where the offering takes place. And we have all these individual items with beginning and end that we slap together on this playbill. Sorry. We slap together on this playbill, so if we come in 15 minutes late, we can see exactly what we've missed and exactly what's coming next. And sometimes we think that's what this is. Oh, there's a time for the apostles' teaching. Well, the apostles' finished teaching now, so let's have fellowship. Hey, how you doing? Everybody doing fine? This is great. Yeah, let me tell you. The fellowship's over. Now let's go ahead and have our meal. When that's over, somebody pray. It's not how it was at all. This was like an, uh, an overall four key points that they made sure took place during their love fest It also served as their worship service and included the Lord's Supper. They would sit together and they would minister. Somebody, I'm talking to Robert over there, and I stand up and I go, hey, everybody, listen, Robert's got a real prayer need. Let's pray for Robert. And uh, everybody stops eating and we pray for Robert. And we continue eating and fellowshipping. And then all of a sudden some Meredith says, hey, uh, you probably don't know the problem I'm going through right now, but I could really use some prayer or something like that. Hey, I was looking at God's word and let me tell you what it said. And I long for that. You know, well, I I I don't I don't uh I don't have anything worthy to share with somebody else. Well, that either means you do and you're afraid, or it means God's never shown you anything, which is even a worse problem. But the fact is, that's how church was back then. It just built unity in, in and 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 during the time, after we finish eating, there's a you know, there's a time of teaching, and there's a time of the Lord's Supper was being taken, and there's the time of prayers that took place. I'm sure there were some songs that were sung. And during that time also, you had people sharing what's going on in their life for the encouragement and edification of somebody else. I mean, I'm the pastor, and I would love to hear what God's doing in your life. But what usually happens is this. Hey, uh, Tuesday night Bible study, for example. Hey, anybody got anything you want to share? Anything God's showing you in, your, in the Word? Oh, okay, so what does that mean? That means what? God didn't show you anything in His Word this week? I don't believe that. Or maybe you weren't in His Word this week? I'm hoping that's not the case. Or if He did show something to you, we're so conditioned that I can't talk, I can't share, all I can do is is just sit and participate or sit and observe. I can only participate when they let me participate. You may stand and sing. Okay. Uh, you may pray. oh, Okay. But as far as sharing, that's, that flies in the face of the whole doctrine of the priesthood of believer, does it not? That You have direct access to God just like I have direct access to God, and what God shows me is no more important than what God shows you. Agreed? So what happened to the left feast? I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to give you all the research um, later on this week when I send it out to you. What happened was the uh, church changed, and all of a sudden the church decided they were tired of being underground, they were tired of being persecuted, they were tired of, of not having some sort of social status, they were tired of being canceled. And you had this controversy that broke out between the, the Confirmed, true, committed believers who didn't want these guys even in the church anymore, guys that today would, you know, affirm gay marriage or, you know, transgenderism and all that kind of stuff, they still call church. And then, and then all of a sudden, it's this conflict. Um, developed and then these people in the middle are trying to know it's okay we can all be one body of christ and no not unless these people recant for the sin they've committed against us and our family who had deaths in our family because of their betrayal and what happened the government got involved and the church decided to capitulate to the government and as you know the big story constantine decided for political reasons that he would uh, declare christianity to be the premier religion this is after the Edict of Toleration, primary Religion in the Roman Empire. So therefore now pagan temples were decommissioned. And the church goes, I want that building. We, we want to be known as, as like somebody like that. So, so can you give it to us? Sure. So now pagan temples were turned into churches. And pagan priests with political clout were now turned into Christian uh, priests with no clout at all. And we moved into the new phase, the phase of mixed marriage in your Revelation chapter 2, where now the state is married to the the church. And all of a sudden, the true Christians decided they wanted to continue the love feast. You know, that's how we do church. That's how we've done church for 200 years. That's what builds community. That's how we survived during all the great persecutions. So we need to continue what we've done since Christ built his church in Acts chapter 2. And the group that controlled the political side said, no, um, this is now a sanctuary. This is now a church building. And you can only do pagan church kind of things in this building. You know, the pastor stays up there and swings the ball of smoke and you know, he comes and only does these things. We just have to sit and, and just respond. We, we can't know what's going on. Later on, they would just do all the, the church services in a language the congregation didn't even know, you know, just to keep them in the dark. And we enter into the dark ages and the middle ages. I mean, it is amazing. And so there was a conscious effort that was made by the compromised mixed marriage church to rid the body of Christ of the one thing that made them strong, which was not only a devotion to Christ, but a devotion to each other. And the way they did that is they took away the God-ordained vehicle of that, which is a common shared meal together and the ability to share what God has done in your life with others, to really build a community. Um, where's Debbie? Debbie here? Debbie, gotcha. I don't want to embarrass Debbie, but uh, we had a Bible study, Tuesday night Bible study, and Richard came. And uh, Richard, um, Richard was not doing well at all and uh, came to our Bible study. I think he only came two or three times, came to our Bible study, and I remember he was sitting there. And I'm not, you know, I think we were just having a prayer where we just kind of if God leads you to prayer, pray, please do. And, you know, Karen will start and I'll finish or something of that nature. And then Richard started praying. Do you remember that? Started praying for the depth of his soul. And uh, i never heard Richard prayer, pray before. I never, it's, it was out of character for, for Richard, it seemed like. But I'm telling you, once that happened, it's a high point in my spiritual life because I got a glimpse into who Richard Fox was, the man when he prayed like that in a Bible study? Well, suppose if he wasn't allowed. No, that's just my job to pray, or the people I assigned to pray. But he did, and, and all of a sudden, it just bonded us together. I mean, you remember that like it was yesterday, don't you? It was incredible. God wants all our times like that to be together. But what it takes is a, a change of our thinking. For example, not chastising anybody. It's just what we've always done. We all got food, and we came back to uh, sit. Nobody sat with Meredith. Or maybe, Meredith, you didn't sit with anybody else. I don't know how that really worked out. Is that what happened? Okay. You know, do you know, did you know what Meredith's going through right now with the uh, death of her mom and the probate and the foreclosure of her house? And... But the fact is, I mean, Meredith's got a lot going on her plate right now. And, you know, as long as we allow Meredith to sit over there by herself, we're not ministering to her. We can't, we can't help her out. And part of, part of church, this koinonia, is for us to be involved in people's lives so that we can pray for them and help them and minister to them. And the way God has designed us, to, the, the vehicle he's given us to do that, that works better than any other way, is having a communal meal before, just like the early church, before we have church before we have a worship service. And during that time, just have a time of fellowship. True fellowship and prayers, and and there'll be Bible teaching, and there'll be worship time, but all centered around this love feast that uh, I think the church has really suffered with since it was forcefully removed from mainstream Christianity, which later became the Catholic Church in the fourth century that I will share with you this week. Amen? Let me pray.